The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Everyone, <clears throat> and um, so last week I started a series of talks, which I'll give for the Mondays that I'm here for the next eight weeks or so, on the Eightfold Path. And so it's a teaching that comes from the Buddha, and uh, it's uh, come down through the ages as one of the core presentations of the path of practice that he taught. Uh, he taught a path of practice, a path that would take a person from uh, their suffering, from their despair or fear or tension and troubles that they have, uh, along a path that would end up with freedom from that suffering. And down through the ages, many people have walked that path, and it's a remarkable path in, uh, in the freedom and the peace, the happiness that it could uh, provide the heart. Um, so the, uh, today, what I'm going to do is talk about, last week I gave kind of an introduction to it, and after another introduction today, this short one, I'm going to uh, talk some about the first step in that Eightfold Path, the first fold. Uh, it's called Right View. And um, so I'd like to begin by telling a story that the Buddha told that kind of uh, he used as a kind of a simile for, analogy for this path that he was teaching. He said that, um, he talked about a woodsman who went into the woods and the jungle and I guess maybe lived there for a long time, worked there for a long time. And then one day discovered a faint traces of an ancient road that had long ago been overgrown. And so he kind of cleared a little bit this, the traces, the road, and he started following the hints of this. And he followed it deeper and deeper into the woods and ended up at, at, at uh, the overgrown um, not exactly ruins, but the overgrown remains of a castle, of a palace, or a capital, an old capital, and long ago. And so then the Buddha came back out. Or the Buddha, this this woodsman came back out, and he uh, went to the king and queen of the land, and said, "I have found this ancient road, and this ancient road leads to an ancient palace, the ancient capital, deep in the woods." And so the king and queen uh, came to the edge of the woods and saw, in fact, the traces of this road and arranged for the road to be cleared. And they cleared it and they, all the way to this palace capital and they cleared the vegetation from that and then found this beautiful place that then they re-inhabited as the capital. So with that as the kind of analogy, the Buddha said, like the woodsmen, I also, I have found, I found the traces of an ancient uh, road, an ancient path. And uh, I followed those traces and cleared them. And at the end of that, I found uh, the possibility of a profound uh, form of peace and well-being and free, spiritual freedom. And, uh, and then he doesn't say this, but I, I kind of would like to believe this is part of the analogy, is um, the Buddha found the, the path, he found this palace, and then he came back to tell the king and the queen, and um, about what he, what's you know this, what he'd found, 
And um, the king and queen is uh, you and I, <laughs> is all of us. And uh, he's come back and tell, told us there's this path that you can find. There's a trace of it. And uh, I love this idea that, you know, that he'd come back and tell the king and queen and it's us. Uh, because uh, in Buddhism there's a recognition of a tremendous dignity and value in the human being. And, um, and he kind of, Buddha kind of swept away the, not didn't sweep it away, but he kind of um, didn't focus, kind of ignored the caste system of his time and uh, championed equality among everyone who was there. Or a certain kind of equality that came when people um, lived uh, ethical, ethically. People had an inner virtue and purity then they were kind of uh, royalty. So, the, and also the road, this ancient path that's overgrown, is uh, meant to be in you. It's not external. And so there's something within us that we can find, and then we can clear the vegetation that blocks the way. The analogy of a, of a, of a cleared path, a cleared road, is one that's unobstructed for us to walk. And so uh, the idea is that uh, it's possible to create an unobstructed path for us to walk our life. And many people find their lives quite obstructed. Um, and generally it's obstructed by many of the things that we grapple with, we struggle with, our attachments, our fears. One of the uh, powerful things about um, meditation practice, especially if you do it fairly seriously and make it a regular committed part of your life, is that sooner or later uh, you have to grapple with um, all your inner struggles. Um, meditation practice is not an alternative to facing yourself and, and seeing what's really here for you. And some people have a lot of overgrown, a lot of uh, kind of vines and trees and bushes that have overgrown their path. And so part of meditation practice is to meet these things and then begin to cl- do the work of clearing and clearing until they have an un- unobstructed path to freedom. And um, if we avoid the, the jungle, if we avoid the forest and avoid the obstructions, then we can't do the work of clearing the path. So um, the first step of this uh, Eightfold Path is right view. And when I first heard about right view, I, it was a little bit of a turnoff for me, for me. The, the notion of it went many, many years ago. Because right view, uh, in my mind, meant Oh, oh, there's a right belief that I'm supposed to now believe. Um, and, uh, but there's kind of two errors with that view. One is the word right uh, was not meant to be, you know, um, kind of more, you know, kind of puritanically right or doctrinally right or something like that. But uh, uh, means, um, means um, if, if we use the English word right, it means appropriate. Kind of like if, if you want the appropriate tool to do a job. And so, if you want the right tool uh, for the job, and so this is the right tool for the job of becoming free, of finding the path. Um, the other idea of right, uh, meaning of sama, means in harmony. So it's the harmonious view. It's the view that brings you into harmony, in accord with some kind of harmony. So, uh, and the view part uh, doesn't mean in a, a creed or a belief in kind of the abstract, but uh, literally, in, in the ancient language, the word, um, uh, the word is ditti, and ditti uh, has the same meaning as English word view, where it means both to see something and it means a, um, you know, an, a point of view that we have, an orientation, a kind of a belief, but a point of view. So a right view is a point of view, 
a perspective that we can adopt for the purpose of finding the path. If you're going to walk on a path, you have to first find it. And so this is the perspective that allows you to see it. If you're not interested in the path, you don't need that perspective. But if you want to walk the path the Buddha taught, a certain perspective is needing, an orientation is needed. And so this is called right view. And, um, and the right view uh, uh, begins with a view, uh, which might sound quite silly, or, or not silly, but simplistic, that um, uh, uh, the actions that you undertake, the things that you do, have consequences. And most of us understand that. Uh, if you, um, you know, drive your car f- for a long time without refilling it with gas, and you're driving out in the desert, there'll be consequences for you. But if you fill the gas, then you know, you probably make your, your way. So there's all, you know, there's all kinds of things. You go to the store, and the consequence of going buying food at the store is you, car, you, you, you have bags of food to bring into your car and drive home with. Uh, there's many, many, you know, so there's consequences. We, we live on consequences all the time. The Buddha stressed the importance of this because in its spiritual life, the life in Buddhism to become free of suffering, we have to really appreciate those actions which bring us suffering, understand what they are, and understand those actions that bring us happiness and freedom, peace. And we have to have confidence that there's something in our actions that are bringing us suffering. Something about our actions, what we can do that can bring us freedom. Because if there's nothing that we can do, if we have no role whatsoever, then, you know, it's just going to be business as usual. You know, how, how are things going to shift and change um, for you? And, it, and so if you're suffering, uh, and plenty of people suffer, um, most people, I'd say, is that um, uh, for some people, their suffering is a mystery to them. They don't understand why it's there. Some people will spend years in therapy to try to understand what the root of their suffering, why they're suffering, what's, what's going on there. And in the busyness of, a, of life, in the busyness of an active mind, it's sometimes very hard to get uh, still enough, focused enough to really see deeply enough to see what we're doing that causes our suffering. One of the things that people will often do is look in the wrong places for the causes of their suffering. One of the wrong places is to blame other people. Other people can be responsible for all kinds of harm that's done to us, but it's the wrong place to look for um, uh, what we can do to become free or to understand what we do that causes us suffering. So the Buddha said that the beginning of right view is to really appreciate um, that our actions have consequences. And uh, without that appreciation, then there can't be the confidence and the interest to do the next step. And the next step of right view is to look at the world of action and consequence um, in a particular area of our life. And that is the area having to do with suffering. And so uh, right view begins by being interested in your suffering. And so as uh, someone made a bumper sticker here some years ago, Cheryl's here? Someone, um, we had a bumper on the counter there. I, I seen, there you are, Cheryl. Did anybody put it on their car? I don't know. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen any of it? Try it again. <laughs> The bumper sticker was, uh, I break for suffering. 
the, um, so I, you know, I stop for suffering. So the idea is to take suffering seriously enough to take a second look and third look and look more deeply, which also is somehow kind of for some people um, uh, counterintuitive. Some people want to avoid it. Some people want to run away from it. Some people want a quick fix. Some years ago, a friend of mine was teaching um, mindfulness-based stress reduction for people who had chronic pain. And a very tough retired police officer uh, took the class for extremely back, bad um, back, back pain. And he'd been to doctors, he'd done everything that medicine could do apparently back then, and he still had intense pain. And so he came to this kind of last resort, he came to this um, mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, course, class. And uh, one of the first da- days of the class, my friend uh, told the people in the class and told him, um, uh, uh, bring your attention and focus on your pain. And he got furious. <laughs> That's not what I came here for. And I came to have that go away, not to feel it, not to be with it. So the idea is, um, the beginning of it is to, is to take enough, uh, give enough attention and care to get to know our suffering. And just that movement itself is very powerful if the usual tendency is to avoid it or attack it or get angry or, or put your head in, in the sand like an ostrich or something. <laughs> to really, in an adult mature way to sit upright, stand on your own two feet in a sense, and turn around and look at your suffering in an honest and direct way. And to learn to do that, and stand on your own two feet, uh, upright, look at it without uh, succumbing to despair, upset, anger, blame, all the kind of things that kind of self-pity, all the things that can kind of, you know, not 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 get in the way of really looking at it. Here, I am suffering. This is what's going on. Let me look at it. And then uh, the idea is not just not, is not so you can just suffer better. Um, you know that's not the goal of Buddhism. You know these Buddhists—they're just a party pooper. They tell me to look at my suffering, and I'd rather do a spiritual practice that has me dancing and singing. You know that's really you know that's fun and it's much more spiritual. I feel so enlivened afterwards, and it's great. But you have to be a little patient. Wait, that's, you know, this is only the entry point. <laughs> so the the we look at it long enough so that we can see that action, the thing that we're doing, that's bringing about the suffering. And, and what the Buddha said was this, the action is um, uh, attachment or clinging. And this is one of the big challenges in what the Buddha had to teach. And it's a worthy challenge for you to take up and you know, debate with uh, or look at. Mostly you don't debate it by abstractly. You kind of really look at yourself and see if it's true. Can you find in yourself uh, the attachment or the clinging that uh, is there, that's the condition for you to be suffering. And you won't find it again if you look for the suffering, out, for the cause outside. But what are you doing? How are you tightening up? What kind of compulsions are you living under? What drivenness, what um, uh, contraction do you have that seems to be the source of the suffering that you have? And um, uh, And then... Seeing that, then the next step is to see, at least see or have a vision for the possibility then of seizing from that action, of somehow letting go of that attachment, that clinging, that contraction that's uh, giving rise to that suffering. And so that's kind of the good news of Buddhism. So you're, you, know, you stay with your suffering to see the cause. Uh, you, you, at least you see, you see the cause, you have a sense of it, 
to have a vision of the possibility of happiness and well-being at the other side. Even with that vision uh, of happiness and peace at the other side of it, it's not so easy to let to discover our clinging really well and understand it well enough to let go of it. And this is why we have the Eightfold Path, uh, in order to help us with that process of letting go in a deep way. So that's the core kind of idea of right, of, of, um, of right view. And it's to use that perspective, orientation, to pay attention to our suffering, our distress, our unease, the ways we get uncomfortable, to take it seriously. Now, this is, uh, now, so this is a kind of core... Some people say the heart of Buddhism. It's called the Four Noble Truths. So to use the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. So since Buddhism is a world religion, it has a kind of a, kind of a lofty status, and we say this is the core essential teaching of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths. It puts it up on a pedestal that seems really lofty and great. And then because it's a religion, you might think, well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I want to get too close to this you're already really intimate with it. Uh, you're already doing it. The Four Noble Truths are not uniquely Buddhist, but they're uniquely human. You're all practicing it. I, su- I suspect every day you do it many, many times a day, practicing the Four Noble Truths. You just don't call it that. But the movement that it entails inv- is, uh, is something we all do all the time. I would suggest, I think I made some these examples last time, but I, uh, for those of you who weren't here, uh, kind of, I guess for those of you who were here, maybe we could come up with a better example, a different example. Um, the, um, it used to be many years ago that I liked to read the newspaper in the morning. And that went quite well, that breakfast with the newspaper, uh, until I had children. And it kind of went okay until my children were ready for school. And when they started to go to school, they had to be in school on time. And by the time the whole morning routine, you know, was, you know, I had, was kind of, you know, it didn't work so well anymore to read the newspaper in the morning. And, um, and so at some point I started noticing that uh, I was suffering. And how I was suffering was um, I would feel really harried and uncomfortable and then uh, getting out the door and getting the last things done and getting the car- kids up to the car and if you ever tried to get a five-year-old to a car in the morning, I mean, the problem with five-year-olds is that they're too much in the present moment. You know, I teach them, I'm trying to t- I teach you all to be in the present moment. That's what my job is. But if that's all these five-year-olds, you know, it's, <laughs> there's this, they, I mean, my kid would go out the house and he'd see the flower, he'd stop and look at it and enjoy the flowers and, you know, and he's really there for it. He's fully present and, you know, it's, it's like um, there was a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon many years ago where Calvin and Hobbes are climbing on a branch of a tree and Calvin says something like, you know, oh, just to be completely in the present moment is so wonderful, this is great, everyone should practice being in the present moment and how wonderful it is. And Hobbes says, uh, yes, but you're supposed to be in school right now. LAUGHTER so here I am, you know, impatient, trying to eat late, trying to get this kid. So it, it took me a little while to realize I was living under a certain kind of stress. And so by looking at that, I pretty quickly I, I recognized that the, thing, the one thing that I was holding on to in the morning that I was kind of stuck on was reading the newspaper. And that was kind of a linchpin for this 
particular suffering that I had was you know, not really willing to give it up. And um, so I had to face my demons and, uh, and uh, kind of, you know, and kind of not be so attached to my newspaper. And then it became much easier to get the kids out. So I hope that example points to the idea this is something you already do. You probably have things like that you do, you know, even the example I gave last week, I think, was the idea of coming to a red light. And, uh, you know, you feel impatient the red light. It's uncomfortable. You feel yourself, you can't blame anybody else for that discomfort. You realize that you're holding on, pushing, and so you relax, and it ends. That's the, that's the, that's the, the first three of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the fourth noble truth, maybe, maybe it's not so common, because that's the path of practice that we have. So that view of the four noble truths, or the three noble truths, you know, suffering, that, gives, that shows us where the path is, that shows us where the work is, that shows us what needs to be addressed uh, if you want to follow the Buddhist path to freedom. And, um, and so um, uh, it's an alternative to many of the other places people look for for, um, for relief for, or, or release from their suffering. The argument in Buddhism is that um, this is the direct way, that you're much more, it's much more direct to uh, become free of suffering, to look at your suffering and be honest about it and try to address it, than it is to uh, try to, um, you know, there's many other things, worthwhile things you can do, nice things you can do, but they're not really addressing the issue directly. Um, and so some people in the spiritual circles um, in the time of the Buddha, they did a lot of things the Buddha thought was not very efficacious. For, um, that, you know, so, for example, uh, in ancient India, they would, uh, in his, uh, they would bathe in the rivers, get Ganges, in order to become pure. And the Buddha said that this wasn't, you know, he, he, wasn't, he didn't stand behind that as an effective way to become free of suffering. Uh, people would do all kinds of rituals to the gods, and uh, so they're trying to find their happiness by getting the gods to kind of do nice things for them, but they made, make offerings. Uh, people would do ascetic practices, and they would, uh, you know, do all kinds of things that, um, you know, to starve themselves and um, all kinds of things, to, you know, to, to suffer a lot. And, and um, the Buddha said, that's not, that's not going to address the issue either, it's just going to make it worse. If you want to address the issue, you, you need to kind of look at it right in its face. Be really honest by it. And that's a direct path to uh, where you find the direct path. So right view. So right view is not a belief, but it's a, it's a, it's a perspective or an orientation or a, a, a frame of reference we use to uh, look at this human life of ours. And there's, our life is complicated. There's many things you can pay attention to. But if what you want is real freedom from suffering, you want that happiness that comes from that release, then um, the Buddhist path is to take an honest and mature look at your own suffering. And that's the beginning of the path. If you can go a little bit further and begin at least appreciating or look for or understand your contribution to that, the way that we cling, get attached, crave, get contracted, are compulsive, uh, addicted, uh, you know, so many different words we have in English to re- represent the idea of being caught, caught up. Um, so we begin to understand that and then begin the process of loosening that up, um, uh, dissolving the knots that we're in, uh, thinning out the attachments that we have, 
um, until finally one day um, the knots, the attachments, um, the, the thread, of, the, the rope of attachment that keeps us bound to itself is worn out. And that's a beautiful thing to come to a time when the heart is free and the mind is uh, released in its freedom. So that's uh, right view, the first step. So we have some time now if you would like to ask any questions about that. you please use the mic? So my question is, um, could it be sometimes that you're looking at your pain for too long? Because I imagine you look at it and somehow uh, you get over that or it goes away or it diminishes. But because, uh, I mean, at, at least with me, sometimes I just think I'm looking at my pain a lot or maybe I'm not really looking at it and just obsessing about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the way the, this, this mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths works is that uh, we're looking at the, at the consequences of what happens. This, you know, the action and consequences are very important. So um, uh, you might be suffering, but then if you look at it, uh, if you're paying attention and you look at it in the wrong way or to, you know, so, then, then hopefully you notice that you're suffering about suffering. And one of the ways to suffer about suffering is to hate your suffering or to run away from it or close down or attack it um, or get afraid. There's many, many reactions we can have. And so uh, the idea is to be mindful of the reactions we have, the relationship we have to it. Um, because sometimes if you focus only on the suffering... Uh, you might be, you might miss you might not be paying attention to the much more important thing of the moment, which is your relationship to the suffering. So by becoming sensitive, opening up in a sense, and being mindful and notice, start, starting being sense, uh, wise about noticing where you're uncomfortable, where you're stressed out, where you're where you're uh, tense, uh, then you might see oh the issue is not the suffering right now. The issue is how I'm relating to it. And then, uh, and then seeing the consequences. And if you find, if you notice by doing that noticing, that you're suffering more and more, uh, then you might want to uh, pull away. Uh, for example, people can have panic attacks. People look at their fear, and, the, and uh, there's, a, there's an unconscious reaction with the fear that the person just gets more and more afraid. And that's not useful. So, uh, so then there are, can be strategic approaches to avoiding the suffering. Strategic, what I mean is that sometimes it's counterindicated to go directly and be present for suffering. But you have to begin that process of doing that to know that it's not useful. And then knowing it's not useful given the causes and conditions of your life, then you say, well, what is useful? How do I approach it? Uh, is, there, is there another way of doing this? Do I have to do something else first? Uh, so, for example, one of the uh, people who have a lot of self-hate or a lot of anxiety... Uh, sometimes it's, uh, it just, you know, it, it, it go, it, uh, it's counterproductive to go into it too much until the person has quieted down, settled down, become calmer, perhaps maybe become um, a little bit more open-hearted. And so the, the person could do just breath meditation for a while to make themselves calmer. Uh, another possibility that we've, instructions we give people sometimes is to do loving-kindness meditation 
that not only it calms people down, but creates a, con- a, a, a container or a f- attitude of much more goodwill. And then with a calmer mind, more goodwill, sometimes then it's easier then at that point to turn towards the anxiety or the self-hate or whatever it might be. So you have to prepare yourself for that task sometimes. And that's kind of what happens with the Eightfold Path as well. Um, uh, you know, as we'll see as we go along here, um, uh, the three middle steps of the Eightfold Path have to do with cleaning up our, our life, our ethical life. So we have a high degree of ethical integrity. And um, having ethical integrity is a wonderful support, um, a refuge, a support, or it gives strength and support or confidence for our ability to turn and look at ourselves. Because then we know, at least I'm ethical. And that counts for a lot. Um, and it, so I might have a lot of anxiety, but I don't have to worry about that. You know, that I'm blameless that way. Does that make some sense? So I hope... Over here. What's uh, what's the relationship um, between uh, right, wise view and uh, emptiness? I, for some reason, I thought a view of emptiness was in there. I don't know. The view of emptiness. Um, you know, there's. Um, the core teaching is, is uh, here, I'll start this way. Um, the, uh, Tibetan Buddhism puts a tremendous emphasis on these teachings of emptiness. And there's many different aspects of emptiness teaching. But the Dalai Lama has said that it's more important to understand karma than it is to understand emptiness. And karma is basically the same thing as what I've taught today. That their actions have consequences and the core action to understand and appreciate is suffering and the causes of suffering. That's the core. Some people would say the teachings of emptiness are, uh, there's a bit different teachings of emptiness. It depends, you know, so there's a whole list of them. But uh, one of the ways people make the connection between the right view and emptiness is that um, because nothing is absolutely, um, um, everything, everything is in flux, everything comes together because of causes and conditions, nothing is permanently, essentially there, you know, some permanent essence to it, uh, everything is malleable. Everything can change. And so because everything is changeable, because everything comes together with causes and conditions, and, um, that's the good news because that means that the things that trouble you the most, like your own suffering, that can change. You're not stuck with it. Suffering is not permanent. Amen. Is that more in Mahayana Buddhism? This is closer. Um, is that so? Is that part of the teaching more in the Eightfold Path when Mahayana Buddhists teach it? Is that? Yeah, the, the, the emphasis on emptiness is uh, the emptiness philosophy or teaching uh, is really prominent in Mahayana and Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and all that. And uh, they kind of make it like the one of the uh, you know if they t- if they if they talk about some of the most important teachings they'll talk about emptiness and the Theravada tradition that we come out of um, uh, emptiness is considered to be one of the um, there's two things about emptiness it's con- many things but uh, emptiness is generally seen to be um, not something a philosophy or a teaching that you learn 
And often in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll give you the logic and they explain why logically everything is empty. In uh, Theravadan Buddhism, is understood to be a very deep level of, of insight that happens from deep practice. So it's something that comes as you go along. Um, because the emphasis in Theravada is always to turn and look and see what's actually here for you. And emptiness gets revealed, becomes something gets revealed as practice gets deeper and deeper. Um, and it's not meant to be the kind of the entry point to teaching for, uh, for practice. Um, so the teachings, the practice, the understanding of emptiness is there in Theravada, but it's not the entry point. Generally, um, uh, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path is the entry point. I shouldn't go up here with Helen. Um, what do you think of the alternate translation, um, perfect vision? Everyone? Perfect vision. Perfect vision. Mm. Perfect vision. I like vision for... Uh, um, uh, yeah, I don't think I care so much for that. Perfect vision. So I, I think, as I, and I, I think, as I hear it, a, a couple of things. That um, um, I think in the beginning, it be, it begins by a view, uh, an understanding, a kind of understanding we take, um, uh, we give the benefit of the doubt to. So this, you know, this, these these Buddhists say that it's useful to pay attention to suffering to look at the cause. And so I think I'm going to start using that as a framework to understand my life to look. L- later, when practice, when, when, uh, when we've understood and the insight is really deep, then it becomes a vision. It's something we actually see. And that's the, that's the direction the Eightfold Path is going, is this become a vision where we see it. And at some point it becomes uh, perfect, perfect enough to do its task it's, it, it's set for. So... Um, uh, so uh, when, when the, the Eightfold Path is said at some point to be transformed into the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path is the same path, but that which is realized by the people who have taken the path all the way. And when you take it all the way, then it's no longer an orientation, but then it's a vision. It's you actually see the world this way. It's kind of a second nature to see it this way. And is it perfect? It's perfect enough for freedom. But uh, to set it up that way, you know, the, the Buddha, I don't think the Buddha set it up that way because um, it, it's, the, it's the entry point to it. And, and for, for people who are beginning or who don't have that vision, it, you, know, you can't call it a vision and you can't call it perfect. And, uh, and you know, and then, and then I, there's enough people, especially in America, who tie a knots around being perfect. So uh, it's bad enough that it's right. <laughs> so over here and then you talked about being open hearted. What do you feel is the best practice for becoming open hearted? Uh, I don't know for you. Uh, I don't know for other people without talking to them and getting to know them because there are enough differences in people that there are different practices that work best for some pe- people more than others for that open-hearted thing. Uh, I don't know if it was the best one for me, but um, the two practices that opened my heart the most 
uh, in my first, you know, 10 years of practice or so, 20, 15 years of practice, where it was, um, uh, had to do with meditation practice. And the Zen practice I did, it was through that that I just I, I really started to open my heart and, uh, and uh, I discovered a level of compa- compassion was born. And then when I did this practice here, uh, the mindfulness practice, uh, that, gave, that opened my heart in a different way so that it became characterized by loving kindness and metta. So for me, that was the route. And it was, you know, it was one of the great uh, treasures of my life was to have this happen through the practice. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like I was trying to open my heart. It was, but uh, you know, I didn't even know that it was an issue. I didn't, I didn't know I needed to. <laughs> and um, and so, but then um, he was kind of surprised that this was this is the results of what happened. And a lot of it happened because I sat with my suffering, um, uh, especially in the, during my Zen time. I had a lot of suffering, and um, and the teaching in Zen, they didn't teach the, the four noble. Truths and they didn't teach this. They didn't teach a lot at all. What they taught was just uh, sit upright and be still in the midst of what's going on. And uh, and so I did that for hours and hours, days and months. You know, just sit there upright in the middle of what's going on. And and for me, there was a lot of suffering. And so and I didn't I didn't you know I'm not I wasn't that smart or something. It didn't occur to me I was trying to get rid of it even. I was just doing the practice they told me to do. And the consequence is something began to melt inside of me. Something began changing. And had to do with that confrontation, that willingness to stay there in the midst of the fire for long periods of time. Clear enough. So um, next week, then uh, we'll do um, uh, cover the second step of the Eightfold Path, which is right intention. And intention is one of the really, you know, is another aspect which is really central to Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism puts a uh, tremendous importance on what your intention is and the intentions you live our life on. And, and finding your deepest intention and, and uh, caring for your intentional life. Intention is so important in Buddhism that sometimes, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I've thought that if anything qualifies as yourself in Buddhism, it's your intention. Uh, it, it shapes and colors and, and characterizes what, what a person is more than anything else. So, um, right, so right intention is the intention that uh, supports this endeavor, this uh, powerful practice. Uh, of the path to freedom. So that'll be next week. So, thank you. <laughs>